Michael Vincent, the dude. Hey, good Monday morning from uh, or afternoon from the heart of Freight Alley, dude. What a great two weeks of NFL football, and yeah. much deserved after that uh, fiasco <laughs> of uh, what are the what's it called the, the college football fail- playoffs? Well, the overtime thing. Well, you know the Bills had to uh, crawl <laughs> so the Bengals could could pounce. Pretty. Oh, look at you, man. Here's something I know a lot of you are data dorks out here. You you watch stuff like this to get context and stuff like sonar. Well, if I was looking yeah. at Predictive analytics. If we okay. had like NFL projections in Sonar, I'd be looking at this number. Patrick Mahomes' cap number goes from seven million to thirty-six million next year. Will the Bengals Ooh. enter next season fifty-six million dollars under the cap? Whoa, that's impressive. That's impressive. Hey, and you know Chinese New Year's coming up, yeah, and it's the sure year is. of the tiger. Right, you're the tiger. Yeah. Unless, of course, you're a Tiger King, sentenced to 21 years in prison on Friday. <laughs> All right. Well, was he really? <laughs> he really was, yeah. <laughs> I was just wondering maybe if the Chinese New Year, the year of the Tiger, affects Vegas odds. On the uh, I don't, well, Rams are favored by uh, negative, ne- or four-point favorites. Going oh, to okay. Right. Yeah. Although, we have so an article on Freightways right now, Freightways.com, that says, uh, don't expect too much disruptions from Chinese New Year this week. It is only a week. Well, we'll see. On today's episode, we are talking about okay. the Freedom Convoy 2022 protest, Kansas Capitol, that happened over the weekend. We'll yeah. find out how long it's going to last, what kind of impacts it's happening on cross-border and intra-Canada trucking with uh, Fleet Ops CEO Chris Atkinson. Ooh, we're going to be talking right. to Phil Logic's founders about um, building their sort of mall network, right? Bricks to yeah, yeah, Clicks yeah. mall network in the Bricks state of clicks. retail. We'll get their founder story and everything they're doing there. Kevin Clonch at Rider System, he's going to discuss how their company retains talent Without non-competes, go figure. Von Moore, President and CEO over at AIT Worldwide Logistics. He's going to deliver uh, broader trends in capacity and the economy. And then Troy Rayleigh is the president at Redwood, Mexico. He's going to be talking about the benefits of sourcing from Mexico. But let's tip the band before we get to business. Yeah. You may think of AIT Worldwide Logistics as an average U.S. forwarder, but in recent years, they've evolved to become a global transportation management leader, generating more than $2 billion in annual revenue by providing supply chain solutions for Fortune 500 companies shipping between Asia, Europe, and North America. Despite the company's exponential growth, they are still the experts when it comes to creating customized solutions to fulfill your supply chain requirements. Find out how your business can benefit from AIT's logistics experts at Tell Them, Dude. <laughs> Go to AITWorldwide.com immediately after this show. So there are some concerns, right, that this Canadian convoy may turn into a January 6th type of incident up there. People were afraid. Well, we I can a, see that. I can see why you'd be. You know, I mean, you got to yeah. be concerned. Yeah, in this, in sure. This well, Nate Tabak sure. was out there. He's one of our reporters. He said so far the protests have been pe- peaceful over the weekend. There were several incidents that obviously we condemn with uh, Confederate flags, a few Nazi flags. Um, there was a, a monument or two that was disrespected. But all in all, it seems like there wasn't a ton of violence or, or any of these these negative negative things. That yeah, there seem there seemed not to me. I mean, you know, they said they danced on the tomb of the unknown soldier or whatever. But then they yeah. also showed a bunch, uh, you know, kind of giving honor to those statues. Well, Shelley Walker, CEO of Women's Trucking Federation of Canada, said it's disgusting, but I don't think it's truck drivers doing it. You have to be yeah. mindful that sometimes political Agreed. groups can appropriate these things on. On all different sides. Canadian have a hall, right? So, you know, you piss the Canadians off when Albertans and Quebecers join forces to fight the government. Well, let's find out. Let's bring him up. Chris, thanks for joining us on the show. You are over there in Toronto, and part of your job or part of what you guys do is 8 ELDs, 27,000 drivers, Papa John's. No, Fleet Ops. 
<laughs> Dude. Yeah, that's right. So uh, what, what's going down, man? What's happening out, out, out there in Ken? Are you guys all getting along? Well, you would expect us to get along a little bit more. Um, protest in general is an expression of free speech. And it should be converted into this heinously bad faith debate about the character of the people involved. I, as you mentioned, uh, things were were peaceful with the exception of a few incidents. You get a lot of people together. There are going to be a few incidents. And I, I think that what's happening in Canada right now um, does require some amount of healthy debate that is in many cases being shut down, which is certainly it, as a Canadian, as someone who would hope for us to be polite and kind and reach across the aisle. Uh, it's a bit disappointing, certainly. Yeah, you, 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 a healthy debate is extremely important. So what's the temperature up there? Is there the divisiveness there that you see, like, you know, here in the United States at times, you know, or I mean, is there a strong protest against a protest, I guess, is what I'm saying. I mean, I, I think we imported it from you guys yeah. um, as things spike there. Uh, they also spike here. So there have been political leaders, generally speaking, painting a few people from this debate or sorry, a few people from this protest or a few people that may not have even been part of the protest. Um, they're painting everyone with the same brush as those people who yeah. you know, maybe came up there to cause trouble. And that becomes a political football where. Um, our political leaders will turn that talking point into something that's not related mm -hmm. to the protest, but is instead focused on rallying up their base, which is, of course, what you see uh, in the United States as well. Uh, and you don't want to see that anywhere because it's extraordinarily unproductive. Yes. Now, Chris, we've heard conflicting reports on the number of trucks involved. And I mean, if it was 500,000, that would be really bad for capacity. I don't think it's nearly that many. But how many is it? Are you seeing any impacts in capacity, whether looking for capacity within the country or via cross borders so far? No, but what I'll tell you is that our food prices are ballooning and we have had trouble in our grocery stores just making sure that shelves are stocked. And one of the factors that contributes to that is vaccine mandates. So regardless of your position on vaccine mandates, disclosure that, you know, I am vaccinated three times, um, it's certainly true that it is having an impact on the supply chain, just the, the mandate in general, the issue that we're talking about. Um, if you talk to folks on the ground at Walmart or Metro, you guys don't know Metro, um, but they say similar things, but they say that it's being worked out. So it's it's on the up and up, but obviously this will constrain things a little bit more. It will. So is, is it really, a, a, you know, a, a small fringe minority? They've You've got, what, $9 million has been raised so far? Yeah, I guess Canadian dollars, over $9 million has been has raised so far? Yeah. How much is $9 million Canadian dollars, guys? It's, uh, no, it's, it's like $91 million. Ninety-one million. It? It's $91 million, uh, Turkish lira or about there. <laughs> It's <laughs> it's um, it, it's really unfair to take a, a large group of people, um, uh, silence them, and then also say that they're not representative. Uh, they are Canadians. Um, I, I don't think it's necessarily fringe. Anecdotally, like my Instagram timeline, my Facebook timeline is filled with folks that are extraordinarily supportive of this protest and yeah. folks that believe that this protest is a... Um, some offshoot of the alt-right. So, and I'm hearing no sort of moderate commentary in between, which is, um, that's concerning. Yeah, of course, the problem. Yeah. 
It is. When boats, when, when no matter when you open up your mouth, you get painted as extreme this side or that side, then communication yeah. shuts off like in the United States. I will say, though, like, you know, leading up to January 6th here in the United States, there was, um, there was a lot of acrimony, right? There sure. was a lot of anger building up. And sure. most of the sights and sounds along the way for this convoy that we've seen is just a bunch of Canadians along the roadway cheering this group on, people passing out food. It had been mostly positive stories so far, and we hope it uh, remains that way. Now, some of these organizers, they say that they're not going anywhere until their demands are met. Now, the problem with these sort of big groups like this is that sometimes what exactly those demands are get lost. How how long do you see this group staying in Ottawa for? It's very hard to say. Um, Of course, I I remember Occupy Wall Street. That was the first like major debate in, in my, or sorry, major protest in my life that I remember very firmly. And you had the same problem. Right. You had uh, the demands were unclear or they were extraordinarily diverse. I think eventually they obtained some clarity on this, but that clarity is the key to an end to this. So it's either uh, once you know precisely what this group wants, you're then able to identify, is this something that can actually be granted or not be granted? Things seem futile or productive. Um, so I think that's the ground zero that everyone needs to get to. Yeah, it's difficult when you have this type of protest. How do you actually protest something that is meaningful and get that point across and have those negotiations and have a positive outcome when it can be hijacked so easily sure. by all these different things that are going on? And how long do, do the people who actually support the original one stay in support of it or just get yeah. disenchan- disenfranchised and, and move on? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you're looking at... Uh, you should look to the resolve of the folks that drove all the way there and um, you know made the message clear that they wanted to make clear because it's very cold here. So. Yeah, true. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what that's what Nate there. said. Nate, Nate Tabak, our reporter, he said it's cold as hell over here. He said the crowds have thinned quite a bit. Um, it's not exactly the 50,000, but it's still an S show over here in in Ottawa. Uh, one thing of note is that just before we went on on air, Representative Matteo Fleury, he said this morning, I've asked the city manager and city solicitor to immediately launch court proceedings targeting the millions of dollars in funds that this group has raised via GoFundMe. So this battle, oh. it does seem like it's going to still be going on into this week. If you have cross-border freight, um, before we let you go, what should you be thinking about right now, Chris, just to insulate yourself some, from some of this madness? Planning ahead of time, uh, building relationships uh, with those drivers, those fleets that have a reputation for being able to handle that freight well. Uh, we know them, so you can talk to us and we'll put you in touch with whomever you need to, uh, to handle your cross-border freight. Chris, excellent. thank you so much. Stay warm up there in Canada. We appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks, Chris. Our our next guest is a Miami University alum, just like my sister. And you know what? She's super excited about the Bengals going on. We'll find out if Kevin Clonch is as well. He's a group director of custom logistics over at Ryder System. Kevin, you a Bengals fan? Are you uh, jumping on the Bengals bandwagon like I am? Oh, man, I'm a, I'm a huge Bengals fan and and certainly excited. I grew up and born and raised in Cincinnati. You spent 33 years in Cincinnati and well I've been waiting almost all my adult life to to get back there and and uh, pump for the city pump for the pump for the team and we'll certainly be cheering them on here in Dallas unless I can somehow figure out how to get to get to LA here yeah, wow. well, it's hard not to to root them on. They got one of those fan bases that you know that they want it. I bet the Chiefs yesterday, I bet they wish they had a non-compete against the Bengals. 
unfortunately for them, they did not. That's what we're going to talk about today, too. It's becoming a (laughs) very, very passion topic. But let's start here. It's been like the great reshuffle, the great resignation. How has the talent shortage affected brokers like yourself over there at Ryder? Uh, It's certainly been a challenging uh, landscape for, for really anyone in supply chain, let alone brokerages. When you look at um, what it's done, it's really shifted the importance really right back to training. Um, I think when you look at trying to get experienced folks in the market, um, it's become really the biggest challenge out there because of those non-competes. So, so you're really forced to tap into the college ranks. You're t- uh, forced to tap into really non-logistics and supply chain fields to try to get that talent. And then it's up to you to, to have the right training and uh, right program in place to make them successful and ultimately the customers successful. Uh, yeah, yeah, good, good, good point. So, how does the how does the non compete really affect the, the brokerage landscape? There, does it keep people out of it? Is it hard to get through that and have that conversation with the people? Um, it does. But I really think it it's twofold. I, I really look at it, and and you, you you have one of the two things that are occurring. It's you've got people that are either unhappy workforce, which creates its own challenge. Um, and, and are you putting the right product that's out there? Cause they're either disgruntled or just not happy with the culture that they're in. And really it, it takes people out of logistics altogether. And you see talent leaving, um, because they can't sit out or afford to sit out six months or even a year, depending on what the non-compete looks like. And do they ever even re-enter the market? So when you think about mm-hmm. talent and talent shortages, we've talked at nauseum about at, uh, the driver shortages that are out there. I think the talent and supply chain logistics is also hindered because of this very reason. Yeah, well, I mean, good luck getting drivers sense. to sign a bunch of, uh, you know, non-competes too, yeah, but, uh, on that side. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, so what is the recommended approach though, that companies should take instead of non-competes? Um, this is a business of muscle memory, especially in freight. And look, in sales, a lot of companies for years have used these non-competes, so there could be some fear there too. Yeah, I think that's why they were originally designed, right? Uh, you think about, um, I mean, I entered the the workforce out of Miami, as you mentioned, um, almost 19 years ago, and and I signed a non compete right out of college. And frankly, w- when you look at where these where these logistics companies are recruiting from, it is out of college. You got kids that are signing up for they don't know what they're signing up for. I certainly didn't, um, and and they want a job and. You're going to pay me to do this job? Great. I'll sign whatever you want. And and I think that's part of the the challenges. They're uned, uneducated in what they're really signing. Um, and and I think that's part of the challenge. So I think a, an education on that side would help a lot to, to really help them understand, hey, you won't be able to work if it can hold up in court, obviously. Um, you won't be able to work for another logistics company. But I think it, the focus should really be on, I go back to that training piece and really run the culture. The, the culture starts with training here at Ryder. We, we don't have non-competes here at Ryder um, inside of my group for that reason. Um, I, I don't really believe in them because I think if you build the right culture and the right place that people are excited to come to want to work for, the compensation packages is fair and adequate and gets them excited, and you've got that fun atmosphere that, that millennials and, and young folks want to come work for, you shouldn't worry about a non-compete. Um, are you going to have people leave? Yeah, it happens. Um, sometimes it's not the right fit. You look back at really what, I mean, look at college football now. Uh, you got the transfer portal. I mean, they didn't have that forever, and now you've got it. Um, you shouldn't be afraid of people moving if you've got that right culture, I guess, at the end of the day is what I'm trying to say. 
Yeah, I, I agree with everything you're saying. So you, you don't have the non-competes there. You, you explained why you don't have them there. What are some of the benefits and successes you've seen from not having those? What are your advantages because you don't have those? Um, I, I think with, for us, it's, it's really created an open and honest communication path with our folks. We really try to build out a career plan for them. Um, a lot of folks, especially the, the younger career folks, um, they're different. Um, they think differently and they want to see that path. They want to grow. Um, and if we, what we've done is we've designed kind of an entry level position that's got stair step approach to their career plan and career path, and they can see it and they know exactly what those expectations are up front. Combined with that culture, it's created an atmosphere that it's infectious. I mean, winning's infectious, infectious. It creates success. And then that success leads you to, really overall company growth. And, and we've seen that um, really here in, in Riders Brokerage as we've grown exponentially over the last several years. Well, Kevin, I mean, we've re- we've interviewed uh, hundreds of people up here. And, uh, oh, yeah. and whenever we have to research them, I always go on everyone's LinkedIn and I look in their background. And everyone has some rider blood in them. It's usually long tenure. I mean, I'm telling you, yeah. it's True. five years, it's 15 right. years, it's 20 years. People stick around at that company. People who are interested in kicking off 2022 with you or using your services or were interested in what you were saying, where should I send them to? Um, you can connect directly to me, honestly, on LinkedIn. Um, Rider.com certainly has all of our, our positions out there as well. Um, and, and I think you, you mentioned, I'll tie that into, you, you talk about tenure here at Rider. I think one of the unique things about Rider um, that's out there, when you come to Rider, and uh, you can build a, a lifelong career and never leave Rider and touch all different aspects of the supply chain. You really can't do that at a lot of folks. Most people specialize in a niche. And when they want to leave and test out warehousing because they've done supply chain or, or standard mm-hmm. logistics, they've got to leave that company altogether. At Ryder, you can go end to end, um, all the way from the beginning warehouse all the way to the end final mile and never leave Ryder. And I think that's part of really the culture that not only Ryder has created, but also that career plan I mentioned earlier. You can really see it and, and, and we promote a lot from within and, and you can feel it as well as you, as you start to advance your career. <laughs> Kevin, thank you so much for your time today. By the way, we love the trucks, too. Um, I think Michaela oh, yeah. sent those over here, so yeah, say thank right you here. to uh, her. Yeah, I saw well. that. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Take it easy, sir. Go Bengals. Who day? <laughs> I heard it. I heard it. Well, you know what? From, uh, from, from cradle to uh, what, the last mile of your career, you could stick to writer there yeah all the way through it man and that's a, that's a solid point though because you want to experience those other parts of the logistic supply chain once you've done it for a while of course you can do yeah, a lot other. of room to move around i mean i started yeah. out fedex trade networks big big company as well so yeah, for a while there's plenty of room to move around learn ex- exports imports always those big companies always great uh starting grounds uh well yep. vaughn moore president and ceo at ait worldwide logistics is here with us now hey vaughn where are you sitting right now what's going on behind you well i'm sitting in my office so uh, i've got several uh different items behind me, including one picture of me embarrassing my daughter uh, at an event, which is a pretty regular occurrence. Oh, whoa, 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 wait, hold on. Oh, no, is the there a story cool. here? How wall... did you embarrass your daughter? <laughs> well, it was, uh, it was a, an, I put her name in for a, um, for a raffle and we ended up winning a case of wine, but she was underage. So uh, I was very happy to win the wine under her name, but she was very embarrassed at the event. So <laughs> the picture is of her, um, putting her hands in her face and uh, me pointing to myself being very happy. And it kind of encapsulates our relationship. So we kind of had fun with that. 
<laughs> well, you have to have fun. I mean, you have to stay sane. It's been a crazy two years here in supply chain. I feel like a broken record over the past yeah. two years. I feel like we've been having the same conversation about capacity and when is this ever going to end that it keeps going on? Well, here we are again in 2022. You have a unique perspective as a CEO and president over at AIT. So let's just start with the broader overview. When you're looking at capacity in 2022, what trends do you think we're going to see and what do you like? Let's start positive. What do you like that we're going to see this year? Well, I still think you're going to see an economy that's going to be relatively strong. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that on the back end of that, but that's that's one focus of positivity for sure. Um, for our industry as a whole, it uh, depends on how you look at it. I think capacity constraints will continue. I think we're going to see that for another 12 to 18 months at minimum, maybe longer, and it's going to look very similar to what we had in 2021. We have not solved our port congestion problems and driver shortages. We have not solved our air capacity challenges. So they still exist, they're still real. I think we as an industry have to plan for stops and starts, which is a normal part of what we have to do uh, to be able to be flexible and adjust. And that's just going to continue. I would add though that parties and factions, unions, government, industry leaders, all of us, we need to play a part in coming together with solutions and, and help figure this out with one another. Uh, to, to work with our suppliers, manufacturers also, to be able to uh, provide solutions. I mean, we in the industry are in a great spot for uh, how the industry has grown in many ways because we come up with uh, solutions to these problems. But we don't want them to be long-term, and they are right now. Yeah, they, cert they certainly are, and I agree with you 100% about your, your comments with the parties and factions and hoping that they all come together to solve these things and do it. Uh, quickly and sensibly, but in a broader sense, um, how do you see the economy heading this year, the, in, the overall economy? Our number one issue with the economy right now is uh, inflation, right? We're at a 39-year high. Um, it's a challenging time for that very reason. Fed is going to raise rates, which they've already stated they would at least once. I will predict probably twice uh, in this year, which will affect some things, but I don't think it's going to affect our uh, our pricing challenges. I think we've got Consumer goods are going to increase. Um, you look at consumer goods and electronics are probably going to increase another 10% this year. Uh, you've got cars just on an average price. Uh, a year ago, uh, your new car was $40,000 on average. Uh, this year, they're projecting $47,000. So you're looking at a 17.5% increase. Then you look at the gas pump, then you look at your groceries. All this inflation is going to affect us through this year. So. While um, we can look at the economy and talk about its health for what we see, when you really peel the onion back, is it really better for consumers? And we've seen it even in our industry that we're getting 10 to 15 percent raises of people going to other companies or coming inbound just out of even colleges. Um, we're paying more, but people are dealing with cost of living increases and challenges uh, in COLA overall that are um, really unprecedented in a lot of ways. So. Are we better off? I think the answer is there's a good question there. I, I don't know if I would say yes or no in that, but these are real challenges that are faced. Um, and then I'll just go back to that pricing point. Pricing in our industry is going to increase um, year over year. So that's going to look a little different than just capacity constraints. Um, we're going to be challenged uh, for the next one to two years at minimum there. Vaughn, you know, one thing that I've always sort of beat the drum on was making freight mainstream, but I, you know, I, I, I didn't want it to exactly happen this way, but it has. And uh, you probably have noticed the attention to is the spotlight's been sh been shown on supply chain. You were just mm -hmm. quoted this month. 
in the Wall Street Journal talking about the responsiveness to creating capacity and all of that kind of stuff. What's it like being under the microscope? Well, first of all, I, I enjoy it. I think we're finally getting our due. I think the industry itself deserves its credit. It belongs in a discussion in a boardroom. Um, that type of support is, uh, is owed to the logistics, uh, head of logistics providers for our customer base in our industry, too. They deserve to have a voice in their budget. They deserve to have a voice in the overall impact of a company. So those are really positive things. The other thing is that our industry sometimes doesn't get the credit it deserves for how many wonderful things we provide. Life-saving medical devices, uh, vaccines, uh, pharmaceuticals, um, but also just the, the life. We have the lifeblood of our in, of the of consumerism as a whole because we're getting products to uh, the end user. So that's pretty special. And then lastly, you. Uh, you guys particularly do a great job of recognizing our truck drivers, and they deserve that credit uh, for being able to be really our frontline workers, right? So um, I think this is a good thing for our industry, and it also has brought in private equity interest. And some uh, had major skepticism when they first started getting involved, and there's some stories for maybe some validation for that. But now I believe private equity has a proven track record in many cases, including my own of helping provide great success and advice to uh, our industry, uh, different companies, and even my competitors too. And I think that's been a great byproduct of this type of visibility. Yeah, absolutely. The, the private investment, the influx of intelligence that's coming into the to the industry, uh, the attractiveness to those coming out of college, et cetera, is great. So what's on the horizon for AIT in 2022? Well, we're very proud to be able to say that we've crossed over $2 billion here in 2021. So uh, we expect to continue to grow through organic uh, um, uh, growth and through acquisition. Um, but I'm most proud of the fact that we've been established now as an industry leader that is known for doing it the right way. And we're just going to continue to do that. And um, hopefully uh, we'll be able to continue that process throughout um, the world as we've done. So our, our brand is really growing and we're really proud of what we've accomplished. Yeah, you guys are doing an amazing job. A little cowbell for the team over at AIT. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time, and we love what you guys are doing. Thanks, guys. And also, just want to recognize, Tim, your beard game is as strong as ever. Oh, thank you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> trying, to, trying to win in 2022. Take care. You know, there's this charity <laughs> called Community Servings in, in Boston. I won a oh, mustache okay. competition for them two years in a row. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I was the 2010 Mustache Champion and the 2011 um, <laughs> of all of Greater Boston or what? All of Boston, of anybody who could be that thing. Get out of here. Awesome. I kicked everyone's ass in that mustache game. <laughs> they couldn't stay. You had like one month to grow the thing. You had to have people like sponsor your stash. So you had to start clean and then go a month? <sighs> yeah, you had to go. You start clean and go a month and just grow the thing and people would sponsor it along the way. No um, kidding. Yeah, and I just, you know, she put everyone a time lapse of it. You didn't pick. No, I, you know, I didn't get uh, that, that deep into it. But, but right. you know, he shared a story about, so you've got daughters. I have sons, I, they, they're harder to embarrass. How, have you ever embarrassed your daughters like he did? On a daily basis. Well, what's the number I, one I way you I can't read. Come I on, can't tell read. us. Tell well, us on air. I don't, well, I don't Come I don't, on, we're not on air right now. <laughs> we're, not no, on, we're not on okay, air. <laughs> just kidding. All right, China, <laughs> Vietnam, Belgium, France, Germany, Italy, Switzerland, the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, Canada, and Mexico, AIT, Worldwide Logistics, has 2,000 supply chain experts in these countries, and, of course, in offices around the United States. And in 2022, too. They're adding more locations around the world as the organization continues to expand and make it easier than ever for customers to ship between, name the three places. 
Asia, Europe, and North America. Yeah, if Did you're I get ready, it right? <laughs> yes, you're right. Woo! And if you're ready to create a shipping program as unique as you, as unique as your company, tell them where to go. Oh, go to AITWorldwide.com immediately after this show. All right, let's talk to a couple of co-founders. Let's get their story behind Logic, what they're doing, how they're connecting clicks to bricks to malls and all that stuff. You hear people all the time, they go like, well, why don't you just throw everything in the malls? I don't know. They're trying to. We'll find out. Bill Thayer, co-founder and CEO of Logic, along with Rob Kakuchi. Is that, is that right? Did I get that one right? Rob, he's the co-founder and president over at Logic. What is it? Kakuchi, you got it. It's a fun Oh, one. nice. Nice. I, I love it. Well, I read a quote from, from you guys, and it really resonated with me. And it said, our goal has always been utilizing underutilized spaces in shopping malls to convert them into tech-enabled micro-distribution hubs. This is yeah. like everything everyone's been talking about um, for a while, ever since the death of the mall. So I'm excited to have you guys on today. Where are you joining us from? I believe you're a couple of wise guys from New Jersey, if I'm not mistaken. Well, hey, it's, it's New York. Um, ah. And I got to <laughs> tell you, your beer game is on point. All I got to tell you is, what's under the hat? <laughs> not enough, brother. Not enough. Not enough. Grass <laughs> doesn't grow on a busy field. It all so, man. Uh, yeah, well, tell, I, you know, hey, it tell doesn't us grow on cement either. <laughs> tell us, how did you two guys hook up? How did you get together and decide to start a company? Yeah, so uh, we, we met back in 2018 when we were kind of working on other uh, different endeavors. So I, I spent about 30 plus years in retail logistics, technology, e-commerce, and operations. I worked at big retailers like Macy's as a CEO of an off-price retailer called Lomans, also chief logistics officer at Century 21 stores. So there was a need to kind of take that unutilized space in malls and convert it in tech-enabled micro-distribution hubs. And the key here is malls aren't dead, right? They're just in sort of transformation. So my background is, of course, is sort of more in the corporate uh, larger, you know, facility operations, and I'll get let Rob give his background. Yeah, so Bill and I actually met out of uh, a co-working uh, office where where we shared space, kind of serendipitously connected through a mutual friend. But a uh, brief background: started my career in information systems at the Dannon Company, the folks that make all that uh, delicious yogurt. Really focused on demand planning and inventory allocation technologies. Moved into strategy consulting, Booz Allen Hamilton. Enjoyed management consulting, but after enough time in in that field. I uh, thought it was time to strike out on my own. And that's what, I, what I've been doing for over a decade, operating early stage technology companies. So happy to double click more on what we do at Philogic. But uh, we actually met back in 2015, not 2018. Started the company in 2018. Um, but, True, I'm uh, older. But uh, met at a co-working office in uh, New York City. And right, I, I got stories keep deviating. We're going to have to put you in separate rooms. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I gotta tell you, you might not tell, but Bill's beard game's pretty strong. He's got a, a real Chris Kringle vibe going on when... Uh, when he lets it grow up. Oh, beautiful. There you go. All right. Maybe next next time you guys are on, it'd be beautiful. Tell us about, okay, so we, we've talked about this, bricks to clicks. What What's the hardest part about getting this connected, getting it from that brick and mortar to the e-commerce and hooking those up? Well, I mean, the biggest issue is that when you look at physical retail today, it's built on infrastructure of something that mm-hmm. was created 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And when you look at digital commerce, digital commerce was first built as this shiny object that everybody had as separate. Now, when you look at, you know, e-commerce today, it's the growth vehicle. And so when you try to take old infrastructure and connect it with new infrastructure, it's very difficult. So there's the technology and the operational component that has not existed. We bring that to bear, right? The technology uh, and infrastructure to help the physical retail world uh, connect more efficiently um, from the digital retail world, specifically in last mile and utilizing the mall as that last mile fulfillment location. 
I think what I would add to that just quickly is the uh, real-time inventory visibility of what's sitting in a store. Uh, it's not as static of an environment as you'll find in a warehouse, right? People are right. trying things on, leaving yeah. them in, in the, uh, you know, the dressing room. Um, and, and if you look at folks like the big box retailers, Stick Sporting Goods, Home Depot, Target, Walmart, they've done a phenomenal job connecting their bricks to clicks, right? Target loves to brag every you know, quarterly earnings call about how 95% of Target.com orders are fulfilled out of Target stores. But the inline specialty retailers, retailers that you find in a mall have trouble gaining parity with uh, the likes of those big box retailers. So really what we do is, is democratize and level the playing field for those uh, specialty retailers to gain parity with the likes of a Target mm. through things like store and curbside. So what is uh so what is your mall infrastructure and and how does it work? How do people plug into it and what's the uh, experience like? Sure. So number one, the the infrastructure we're utilizing is we're big believers at physical retail. Uh, we don't want to take that physical retail space. We're taking underutilized spaces, so elbow joints, truck tunnels, uh, storage locations. Uh, we truly believe that the right physical retail locations are going to continue to survive and thrive. Um, and when we look at from an integration perspective. It's primarily through API integrations, uh, whether it's through distributed order management system, um, point of sale, uh, TMS. Uh, once again, our technology is built to integrate the retailer where they are at, uh, not where they need to be, um, because everybody's on a different part of their journey. And I think just uh, important underscore, one-time integration with Philogic means you can be live in any of the hubs we have without any marginal development cost and time. So. Uh, our customers, our retail partners find a lot of value in being able to turn on nodes because effectively that's what we are, nodes in their network, wherever they need to be. You know, and your last guest was talking about um, capacity. I mean, that's a big part of what the problem is today. Um, there's a lack of capacity. Um, we're turning on additional capacity in the last mile to make you know, last mile logistics more profitable and more efficient. Excellent, excellent. So can you explain to me the difference between uh, micro distribution and micro-fulfillment? Awesome question. That's <laughs> He's my so happy favorite. you asked. <laughs> that is my favorite. So micro-fulfillment is just that, right? It's the fulfillment process to take an order, get it to a person. Micro-distribution is a full, cha- uh, full supply chain s- uh, solution. So in other words, we support uh, inbound and outbound optimization of, of freight. Um, of course, fulfillment, one of the big things we do. Uh, reverse logistics and optimization, and even things like uh, SortSeg, um, basically supporting uh, last mile carriers, um, providing those solutions in the mall um, yeah. and then and in the last mile. Wow. So what do you think the state of retail and distribution is going to look like? We're seeing these different flex options that you guys are coming up with. We're finding different ways to utilize capacity. Um, we did hear that industrial real, t- real estate space over in like SoCal is, is like 99.4% full. Uh, we're yeah, hearing all about the neck of the woods too. It's, I know. Interesting, interesting times I- indeed. So what's the state of retail going to look like and what's going to be available to retailers in terms of the logistics side? Sure. So when you think about industrial real estate, yeah, it's on a tear, right? It's the most expensive that it's ever been. And that's driven by, of course, that growth of e-commerce. But when you look at our uh, real estate capacity, it's existing infrastructure used differently. Um, In other words, we're not knocking down a retail store um, and erecting a 40-foot clear 200,000-square-foot building. We're using existing space and configuring it differently, right? In many cases, we're connecting multiple spaces through fiber, um, to be able to utilize that space in a more efficient manner without spending a lot of additional cash and uh, capital on building it out. 
And so when you think about physical retail, there is plenty of capacity um, in those in those mall locations as well as other retail locations in the last month. Yeah, there certainly is, especially these days. Now, you mentioned something earlier about when we asked you your favorite question ever in the entire world, and it's reverse logistics. And let's let's talk about that. How challenging is that, especially in this in the space where you guys are at right there? There's no room for this stuff to come back. So these these e-commerce has opened up a huge challenge. No. Yeah, and especially when you look at the the classifications of merchandise that we support, right? Things like general merchandise, apparel, accessories, shoes, yeah. um, you know, th- things like that. Um, when you look at the the normal reverse logistics and return rate, you're looking at anywhere from 15 to 25 percent return rate. Um, and when you look at the explosion of e-commerce, that has just grown exponentially. Um, but the reverse logistics process, the way we handle it, it's a pass through. In other words. That inventory that comes in that we go through the QA, receiving, um, and then processing that order, most cases it's meant to be able to say, hey, can we, res- can we do that return in that middle and final mile and, and change and reduce the return time by anywhere is up to 75%. It's the ability to turn that inventory quicker so we're not putting another distribution center up and filling that reverse logistics inventory. It's about getting it back to where it needs to be sold again whether it's making it available for e-commerce sale or rerouting it to a store. Hmm. Well, let me ask you guys something. So right before the pandemic happened, I mean, the big push, all the articles coming out were like 15-minute delivery, drone delivery, next thing. And then very shortly after the pandemic, all of a sudden Prime is like, you know what? Prime doesn't even mean two days anymore. It's going to show up wherever reliability completely changed, (laughs) the available workforce completely changed. So is this near-instant delivery sustainable without automation? So uh, one of the things I want to you know reference is drones. Drones, I don't know, man. I, I don't see it. Um, yeah. But when you look at <laughs> utilizing infrastructure differently um, to make the last mile and last mile delivery more efficient, absolutely. Because when you think about um, last mile fulfillment now, it requires a big facility that's usually outside of a population area. Um, and it's just too expensive from the real estate perspective uh, to operate those locations in dense populated areas. Um, so our, our, our thesis and what we've seen to be proving so far is um, being able to use um, our infrastructure across multiple customers, you get the power of aggregation. When you have that ability to aggregate the same type of merchandise moving in the same directions, you get economies of scale. When you get economies of scale, guess what? Stuff starts to make sense and starts to make yes. uh, cost-effective sense. I, you know, my, my take on kind of this whole instant needs, 15-minute delivery is uh, it's really specific to product category, in my opinion. If you need your Fritos and, uh, you know, what, whatever the case may be, your diapers, I think, is another interesting category where you need it that day. You need it instantly. I need them. But when it comes to general merchandise, the stuff we deal with, apparel, footwear, accessories, health and beauty, cosmetics, I, I I don't think the case is really there for those categories. And, you know, you can look at the Jokers, the Gorillas, the Go Puffs of the, of the world. You know, a metric came out publicly recently that it's costing one of those companies, not going to out the company, but $139 <laughs> per order where you've got, you know, average order values of like, you know, 15 to $25. I think the unit economics around those models are uh, pretty strained. And I think over the next 12 to 18 months, a lot of the folks who've raised exorbitant amount of money to, to be able to enable that experience. I don't know if it's here to last for, for a few of the players, maybe that are the best capitalized, but I, I think, uh, I think we're going to see the wind come out of some of those sales, unfortunately. Yeah. I think it's very interesting, Rob, that your two hot items for immediate delivery are diapers and Fritos. Um, <laughs> I, I think it tells. 
two, two different audiences. Well, there's, one, there's one and then there's the other. <laughs> i'd love to get your guys we'd love to get your guys thoughts on on uh retail in the metaverse we've we've uh highlighted that before and taken a look at a few uh different yeah, things what do you guys see happening yeah the evolving place the digital mall yeah bill's got a hot nft drop going down tomorrow by the way in the <laughs> hard hard pass hard pass go ahead go right for it yeah, I, I was going to say, I think it's pretty early to tell kind of what that becomes. I think not not so much retail, but real estate. I think uh, I've, I've you know read a lot more about in terms of people trying to buy the White House or buy, you know, iconic landmarks. I think that's a little more developed than, than retail. Uh, I think digital goods have been a thing for a while when it comes to, you know, video games and you want to buy whatever digital goods you can in a particular video game. So I think this is maybe... Uh, just some new branding and a broadened scope of of where it applies, um, but we'll see. I mean, I'm not I'm not at the point of of spending any money to to get goods in the metaverse personally as a consumer. What about you, Bill? I don't know. I, I said hard pass. I mean, I was still they they still lost me at the Snapchat spectacles. I mean, I, I think you know I, I think coming out of the pandemic, if we ever come out of the pandemic, you know, there's this need for people to reengage physically with each other and with the products that they buy. And so when you think about physical retail, the future of physical retail is about, uh, once again, buying stuff, experience things, whether it's entertainment, um, food or, you know, social sort of engagements. But um, it's about seeing each other and being a part of the living universe. So, yeah, I, I do. I think there's something out there in the metaverse. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I think right now, you know, everybody wants to just get out there and connect. What do you think, Tim? What's going to be uh, your first purchase in the metaverse? If, if he's going to get his oil market. changed, he's going to get his the, oil. The, changed I think the first market. purchase will be the ones that we don't notice, right? I mean, when it's just a front end, sort of like that—that that sort of Walmart. When you're just yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. doing what you're doing, interacting with the internet. I don't yeah. think you know, I'm in the metaverse now. I, I don't see like people just throwing on I don't know headsets to to walk around Walmart like that kind of thing. Uh, but can you yeah. make a prediction here? What's going to happen first? Pandemic ends or the Jets win a Super Bowl? <laughs> pandemic we'll, we'll go through five or six pandemics before the jess was gonna win <laughs> all right well what's next for you guys i know you've you've raised uh you raised a little bit of money next year 2022 the world's your oyster what's next for phil logic uh we we are continuing to build out the network um you know as we go down into the mid-atlantic southeast southwest west coast um we're continuing to build out the network um onboarding retailers uh carrier partners um and continuing to build out the Philogic family and the team um, you know, there, there's a lot of opportunity in the space. Um, and we've just gotten started. Yeah. So I think, um, we've raised around $6 million. Most of that hasn't been published. We'll be announcing something a little bit later in the year, which we're super excited about to Bill's uh, point, growing the Philogic family, expanding the network of hubs and, and transportation providers we work with. And, um, it's a good time to be in, in logistics and repur uh, repurposing space in the malls and doing the work we do. So a lot more to come. All right, guys, keep sweeping Excellent those stuff. corners. We appreciate your time today. Have a great week. Thanks for joining us. You too. Thanks, Thanks, you guys. Thanks guys. Wow. Interesting stuff, stuff man. I know. And it's one of those things. It's one of those topics you hear all the time. Well, what are they going to do with the mall? Mm. And then, like, you hear the pros and cons of using the mall space. And I think, you know, you got to have these hybrid areas, right? And you yeah. And you got to use the, the – they're focusing on the right That's thing. That's what they're use doing. Use what's here. underutilized. Get those landlords the money they need. Get those retailers the space that they need and come up with these hybrid models because we're going to need them. Space is uh, in short supply. Spaces in short supply, but in those malls, it can be reconfigured. Like they said, you don't say, hey, need so much space for the actual retail experience. You can move some of that space towards the fulfillment, right? You know what's going to make space in even shorter supply? 
nearshoring, reshoring, all those oh, yeah. kind of things. Yeah, yeah, uh, sure keeping inventory for longer periods of yeah, time. Yeah, bringing back all that stuff here. This stuff takes up space, people. It We're going to talk to uh, Troy Riley. He's the president over at Redwood, Mexico, about nearshoring, about bringing things in cross-border through. We started the show talking about Canada. Now we're going to talk about coming up through Mexico, uh, what that means. If Mexico is a great destination for warehousing fulfillment near last mile, near final mile, kind of. I don't know. Could you put some warehouses there, Michael Vincent? I think you could. I think you could. We'll find out. Let's bring him on. Troy, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, guys. Uh, I want to thank uh, Dinner and the Dude for a chance to speak, you guys. It's fantastic to be on your show. And obviously, I'm a huge fan of Freight Waves. Well, we're very happy to have you on the show today. I like your background with the bookshelf there as well. And you hit at a great time. You hit right as retailers and shippers and everybody are looking for solutions to the madness that's going on, especially with ocean shipping. Let's talk a little bit like that. Well, first, introduce yourself and your role over there. What does Redwood Mexico do for those that didn't even know Redwood had a Mexican arm? Yeah, we're we're a full-service logistics provider in Mexico. Um, I'm obviously the president of the company. We have operations throughout Mexico, Laredo, El Paso, McAllen, in-country. Our headquarters is Monterey, also offices in what we call the Bahia region, which is Celaya and uh, personnel and operations in Mexico City. So that's kind of our footprint today. But we work in U.S.-Mexican customs brokerage, warehousing distribution. Uh, Obviously, truck brokerage is a big part of our operation. Uh, we also have a lot of our technology solutions extended in the Mexican marketplace, along with managed solutions and services. Yeah, so Troy, you know, uh, Duner pointed out uh, correctly so that, you know, the pandemic has caused people to look for, it's, it's becoming, Mexico's becoming a hot spot yeah. as people try to nearshore or reshore, whatever you, you want to call it there. But you guys have been there since way before the pandemic. What was the initial thought process to take Mexico south or to take uh, Redwood south of the border? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. It was client demand. So the company had several clients that asked for service beyond, obviously, the U.S. markets south of the border. They were handling that from Chicago. There was a strategic decision made about four years ago that they were going to invest a tremendous amount of money in, obviously, people, systems, extending our current systems infrastructure, you know, south of the border, along with boots on the ground. So a uh, big decision for the company has paid off very, very well. We're one of the fastest growing divisions of the company today. And uh, becoming very quickly one of the top players in the region. Well, I mean, the obvious reason you would go into Mexico, right, is to shorten the supply chain. Have space, maybe save some money and shorten the supply chain. What are the benefits that come with sourcing in Mexico? You you hit on the big one. I mean, I think with COVID, everyone's had the necessity to rethink their supply chain strategy in general. I mean, everything you learned about Lean Six Sigma principles, Kanban production, pole systems, et cetera, has gone out the door as everyone's struggling to figure out how to find material that's obviously in short supply. So forecasting, material planning, everything has become extremely difficult. And you know, companies that are uh, producing and hoping that just in case there's not gonna be chaos in the future, I mean, how much inventory do you really have to hold today? So shortening the supply chain, you're coming out of Asia, you're 16 to 18 days in transit to the West Coast. You don't know if there's port congestion. You know, the carrier's probably going to ask for their container back. So you've got a transload, another one to four days, arrive to your final destination, the United States. Now you're in a situation where you could look at Mexico as a sourcing model. You're one or two days max to the border, hours in crossing time, and one to three days probably on the high side getting to your final destination or even the client's door. Uh, depending on how you run your distribution from the border. So 
it's a huge difference. You know, you're taking weeks out of the supply chain and obviously helping clients uh, better forecast and predict on a very, very uh, volatile market today. It makes a lot of sense bringing the manufacturing over there and quickening those times and making things a little bit more secure, right? I mean, it's a, kind of a model against just in case versus just in time. Sure. But warehousing space here in the United States is really tight and it's getting tighter, especially in the major areas like the West Coast and the Upper Northeast. What about Mexico as a viable option for, for warehousing and distribution from there? Well, that's happening. You're seeing people th- uh, pull their, their distribution network closer and closer to the border. I mean, Dallas has always been a favorite point. Obviously, Laredo has a tremendous amount of warehousing distribution uh, facilities. They're at 98% capacity, so you know what's happening. Mm. You know, they're holding freight. Uh, they've got a lot of material production that's actually being held for southbound production. And then you have a lot of finished goods in facilities in Laredo uh, so that they can be on top of whatever their forecasting may require. But, uh, but I want to dig in a little deeper than what you're talking about. What, what are some of the other benefits for Mexico, if that's all right? Sure. You know, I think uh, we talk a lot about duties and taxes. That's a huge driver for why you may source in Mexico versus Asia. You know, we all were aware of the NAFTA agreements, North American Free Trade in 1994. It's been cleaned up, modernized by the Trump administration in 2018. So now we have this new USMCA agreement. And what's happening that's really made the market dynamic is now you're in a position where the origin content of the goods have been increased to, to force manufacturers that used to source their goods, their parts, I would say. Let's say it's an automotive production. You're taking your parts in from Asia, moving them to Mexico and just doing the assembly or from Europe. Now they're really having to put those second and third tier production facilities in Mexico to meet the free trade agreement requirements that are in place today. So, I mean, there's other elements of it. I mean, we had uh, in the UCMA, USMCA, we had increased protection for U.S. workers. There's more protection for electronic commerce technology. But, you know, you guys were talking earlier in your prior show about just the dynamics of fulfillment for most companies. You know, imagine today you can put a facility in Tijuana, Juarez, Reynosa, Let's bring Juarez as the example. Somebody gets online and orders a a computer and they want a certain amount of RAM, special requirements on the screen, you know, all kinds of additional accessories. You can produce that computer in in Juarez in 24, 48 hours, ship across the border in hours, bring it into your El Paso uh, distribution center, marry it up with the speakers or whatever other accessories they want and then have that to the client's door, drop it in UPS or FedEx network in 24 hours. So it's just a whole different dynamic as far as what you can do sourcing out of Mexico than what you could ever do out of an Asia uh, production. Troy, that's if if you can find uh, a truck. So before we let you go, what's trucking capacity like in Mexico right now? We know in the U.S., uh, contracted loads about uh, what twenty percent have been rejected for about yeah. the two past two years almost consistently, or yeah. ever since May of of twenty twenty. What's capacity look like in Mexico right now? It's crazy. It's nuts. I mean, it's uh, it's continually changing. I say the only constant in Mexico is continual change. If you're not with a partner that has constant flexibility, um, let's take today in Laredo, you're you're about thirty to one on loads available to trucks available. Lack of southbound volume. Mexico's just not purchasing the amount of freight they used to. Massive amounts of northbound freight shipments. A lot of them are on back order. You have U.S. capacity that doesn't want to make the change to Mexico because they can get 
equal or better rates locally in the domestic market. So uh, even worse, you have companies like U.S. Express who pulled out many years ago. Celadon drops out of business, one of the biggest players. CRST recently pulled out or is limiting their capacity. Uh, large carriers like uh, JB Hunt, et cetera, more of an intermodal model than actually allowing the trailers in country. So equipment really is chaotic right now. So we, you know, we always say our, our Redway, Redwood advantage is that we do have these relationships on both sides of the border. I see a lot of I see a lot of clients get in a situation where they're using one asset based carrier or two, and when they get into a problematic market, rates are going up carriers asking for more money, they don't have the flexibility to make a change. So a broker model, either part of or uh, or can be your complete solution in the Mexican marketplace. Uh, transloading is key. Mm-hmm. Uh, crossing at other points, such as El Paso, we have balanced programs with clients across both Laredo and El Paso. Yeah. Depending on and border places. crossing strategies is key. Troy, it for people who want to take advantage and tap into Redwood Mexico's network, we're, we're just about out of time. What's the website? Uh, it's uh, well, it's redwood.com is where you need to go. And under that, you'll find the Mexico division with all the information you would need. Very cool. Excellent. Troy, thank you so much for joining us on this Monday. Take care and have a great week, sir. We appreciate it, guys. Thank you for the time. Take Good care. Stuff. Absolutely. Well, thank Michael you, Vince, Troy. we got about a minute left. So I got a couple of prop bets, prop bets here for you for oh, the okay. Super Bowl. Great. Uh, well, what color liquid will be poured on the winning coach of Super Bowl 56? We got orange at plus 160. We got red at plus 175. Lime green, yellow at plus 33. Mm. Clear water at plus mm. 600. It's not going to be that. You get blue at plus 800 and purple at plus 14. Mm, I'm going orange. You're going orange. Just Taking orange. orange on there. Okay, I'm going to go. Orange. I'm going to go big. I'm going to go. I'm putting my money on purple. Put the big money there. No, Bengals, okay. Bengals win. It's going to be orange. Here's another prop bet. Will a fan run onto the field during the game? Yes. Just so you're taking that bet. Will any <laughs> player propose to his girlfriend on the field after the game? Yes. Is Does this happen often? Uh, I think it happens like every every game or every, <laughs> every Super Bowl now, doesn't it? Is that frequent? I didn't know I, that. I don't know. I don't know if it is or not, but I'm going to go yes. Why not? Okay, who will perform first? Mary J. Bly oh. plus 170. We got Kendrick Lamar plus 255. Snoop Dogg plus 355. Dr. Dre plus 505. Eminem plus 595. I'm taking Eminem. I think he comes out, sets the stage, blows it up, and it's swept up with Snoop Dogg at the end. I'll take uh, Dr. Dre. I'll okay. take Dr. Dre at the plus 105. I'll make this all a parlay. And uh, be careful when taking long shots here. What MVP has been won 31 of the 55 Super Bowls. We got Matthew Stafford plus 105. Burrow plus 230. We got nope. Cooper Cup plus 700. Jamar Chase plus 2,000. Aaron Donald plus 2,000. Odell Beckham plus 2,500. What do you got? Cooper Cup. Cooper Cup. No question. But the Bengals are, that doesn't even make sense. No question. I'm Cooper Cup. I'm Joe Bird on my parlay. Subscribe to What the Truck, wherever you get your podcast. Find me on Twitter, at me, do less, D-O-O-N-E-R. Find him at Vincent the Dude. Tell him how to be. Hey, peace and love. Spread it everywhere.